Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Garth Ennis, and you are listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, our social media. Go right ahead. First up, go on Facebook.com slash The Marvelists. I just, I realize I cut Eddie off on that. <sighs> People at home, trust me, there's a good reason I'm flustered. And when you hear, you'll understand. Mm. Also, also find us on Instagram and Twitter at the Marvelous. Now I can let you do that, Eddie. <sighs> anyway, uh, you can find us on uh, individually at facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster. You can also find myself on social media, Twitter, Instagram, at Peter Melnick. But remember, there is only one place in the whole wide universe, the whole galaxy, everything. I don't even know. But it's on Instagram, and that's where you can find Eddie Wilson. And that is at Eddie9193. Also, find the show on streaming platforms, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, Spotify, among many, 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 many others. But most importantly, go on iTunes where you can rate, review, subscribe, and share this show on social media. Let people know you're listening and that you are enjoying it. And remember, ice cream machine, McDonald's, broken, five stars, whatever. So, Eddie, on the other end of the tin cannon string, we are joined with someone that is responsible for my love of comics. And you're flustering. And, oh, you better believe it. Um, but right now we are joined on the other end with acclaimed comic book writer and one of my all-time favorites and an absolute hero to me, Garth Ennis. Garth, hello. Hello there. Thank you. Wow. What an intro. Hey, Garth. <laughs> so there's a lot in the realm of comics that you've done. You've been in every company. But right now, one of the things you're working on is the string bags, which is going to be coming out, I believe, in May, correct? Uh, yes, that's right, from uh, Dead Reckoning, uh, the new graphic novel imprint of the uh, Naval Institute Press. Um, it's an original graphic novel um, with art by P.J. Holden. Um, the string bags tells the story of the British torpedo bomber crews of uh, World War II, who flew antiquated biplanes uh, known as swordfish, nicknamed string bags, uh, against uh, the most dangerous uh, battleships in the German and Italian fleets, and gave a remarkably good account of themselves. And one of the things with your writing that's so well-revered is your ability to write war stories. And... It shows very much so in the story of the string bags. We were able to read a copy of it in advance and just wild stuff. But where do where does your knowledge of all this come from? Well, it actually began with the war comics I read as a kid. Um, uh, because of the uh, quirk of distribution, 
in the um, the part of Northern Ireland I grew up in, uh, a small town outside Belfast. Um, we didn't get very many American comics. We didn't even get the British reprints of the Marvel and DC titles. You would see them from time to time, but not with any consistency. Um, we really only got the mainstream British titles, and at the time, that meant 2000 AD, which, of course, features Judge Dredd, uh, and a great many war comics, which uh, in the 70s and 80s were still pretty popular. Um, and so those were, those were the comics I read as a kid while everyone else was reading superheroes, uh, again, just due to this weird quirk of distribution. Um, and reading war comics, I, I slowly um, became aware that these were stories based on reality, uh, on things that had happened to people that people had done in real life. Uh, this, of course, is allowing for the hyperbole of, of war comics at the time. And I think that led me to an interest in military history uh, as I wanted to read about the real-life events that had inspired some of the, the comics and movies and TV shows that I enjoyed. Uh, and that meant that when I eventually began writing my own comics, it was really only a matter of time until I, uh, I would be writing my own war comics. So the, the whole thing came full circle in that regard. Garth, what would you say is such an appeal? I've said before on previous podcast episodes, my first comic books when I was about 10 years old, and we're only about four, four and a half years apart, by the way. Welcome mm -hmm. to the welcome to the decade of five, by the way. I hope it's not too uh, disconcerting. It's uh, okay so far. It's yeah. been, been a bit strange, but I think that's uh, less to do with um, less to do with the decade and more to do with immediate events. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. But what do you think the uh, appeal has been over all these years uh, with respect to the war comics? Because my first ones that I remember were from D.C., were Unknown Soldier, Weird War Tales, and I've completed somewhat of, of a run of both of those mm -hmm. back to the 70s and so on and coming up to that. And I see you, you did do some work with Unknown Soldiers, so I wanted to ask what time period that was. But trying to find some of these has been really tough. Yeah. Um, the Unknown Soldier series that I wrote, I think, appeared in 97. Mm -hmm. um, and it had art by Killian Plunkett. Um, th those comics, those DC war comics are a little closer to the realms of fantasy, I think, than, than many of the war comics I read as a kid, just because occasionally you'll have something like a haunted tank or a Viking prince or something like that show up. Sure. Um, I think that uh, in those days, as I say, 70s and 80s, early 80s, war comics were still fairly popular because I think there was, uh, there was still a relevance uh, people find in, in reading about the Second World War, it had only finished, what, 25, 30 years earlier. Mm. Uh, many of the main players and personalities were still alive. The effects that it had had on our world were still extremely relevant. Um, we lived, we grew up in the Cold War that resulted from the Second World War when the, when the boundaries were drawn in 1945 and the late 40s. So I think there was a and a kind of an immediate interest in it then that had yet to fade. Of course, uh, as the 90s progressed and then we moved into the, the new millennium, um, that did begin to fade. The, uh, the immediate results of the war were less and less obvious. They are still with us today. 
they just don't feel as as immediately obvious. And for yourself, Garth, what would you say was around what age were you when you really started getting immersed and really wanting to be an enthusiastic uh, World War II buff? Um, well, I began reading war comics when I was eight. Uh, mm-hmm. British titles like Battle and Commando. And I suppose that my interest lapsed in my teens and then in my early 20s, I think, when I was already writing comics, not war comics, but um, but, uh, but but other titles, I began to understand more closely just how much of an influence these comics had been on my work. Um, and I think that was when I decided, right, I should really bring this full circle. As I said earlier, I should try and write some of these stories because already... Uh, as I was saying, uh, in, uh, as time progressed from the 90s onwards, these stories began to be lost. Um, and it seemed, uh, as the, the people who'd been involved in the war grew older and, and began to die off, uh, and, and as people generally lost interest, and it seemed to me that I had a certain responsibility, on top of my enjoyment of war stories, to perhaps try to keep some of these people's stories alive, um, rather than simply let them to be lo- let them be lost to history, uh, the string bags is a good example of that. Actually, um, I did an interview recently where someone asked me if if stories of the swordfish crews are really all that well known in Britain, and I said really only to um, readers of military history, uh, to the general public, uh, that that story's probably receded, probably been lost. Um, I do think, I I mentioned this as well in the other interview, that I I do think Americans generally do a a slightly better job of holding on to their history, uh, certainly their World War II history, than the British do. Um, That said, there there are a good many American stories that are being lost to time as well. But that is is a major motivation for me to, to try to keep these stories alive. You know, just one more Garth, one more question, Garth, on on the topic of war. While I'm thinking of it, mm. I have a brother-in-law who's about mid 60s, and consequently, his son as well. They uh, they primarily reside in uh, Virginia, mm-hmm. and I don't know if that's relevant to the fact that they're both Civil War buffs. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if there are people who are you know war aficionados uh, and maybe focus on one certain conflict or another, or just general war fans. How do you find in your encounters with others who share that interest? Um, it, it varies uh, widely. Sometimes people are interested in the uh, political and social upheaval that came about because, because of various conflicts. Um, other times people are interested in the technology. Um, one of the artists I work with, a guy called Keith Burns, who, who uh, recently drew a story uh, called Out of the Blue for me, is uh, fascinated by aviation. Uh, he he loves painting and drawing airplanes. He's a member of the British Guild of Aviation Artists. Uh, he's um, he he just has a particular uh, skill and ease when it comes to to drawing military technology, particularly uh, aircraft. Um, I think geographically, uh, there's there's obviously going to be an influence. Um, your relatives in Virginia. Um, but you, you mentioned, obviously, that is prime Civil War country. There are many places you go. It's hard to avoid Civil War battlefields. Mm-hmm. 
uh, in that neck of the woods, um, that's that's obviously going to promote an interest in a, uh, for a lot of people. Now, in regards to the string bags, how did the story come about? Um, it's one of a number of stories that um, I've wanted to tell that have been on my list for a long time. Um, and it really came about just because it was it was time for me to do that one. When, when Dead Reckoning uh, approached me about doing an original graphic novel, and I thought about the ideas that I had ready to go or reasonably ready to go, that one seemed to be as close to being on the boil uh, as possible, much closer than any of the others. I, I, at any one time, I have about a dozen more stories floating around in my head. Uh, out of that, about half will be much, much closer to fruition than the others, and of those, there will always be one. And I have the most and it just so happened that when Dead Reckoning approached me, the string back, the one that was, as I say, most ready to go, um, I've been reading stories about the swordfish uh, pilots and crews really my whole life. I can remember uh, some British war comics in a series called Commando and uh, another one called uh, Air Ace Picture Library uh, that I read when I was very young and they stayed with me. Uh, I followed uh, really the path I described earlier where I, uh, I then read about the real-life exploits of these aircrew. Um, I read a book called To War in a String Bag by uh, a, a pilot called Charles Lamb, who uh, actually fought in one of the actions described in the graphic novel. Um, and so by starting with, with the war comics I read as a kid and then my own interest in military history and then again coming full circle back to my own war comics, that's really the path you can trace for a good deal of the material I write. Now, in addition to all of that, you know, I'm looking through the, the book itself, and just the coloring especially by Kelly Fitzpatrick is absolutely phenomenal. And there's like a sense, like the way Kelly colored it, there's like a sense of nostalgia to it with the subdued colors, and it gives it more of the tone, you know, that kind of, almost ominous kind of tone to it, you know? Yes, Kelly did a terrific job. Um, I mean, a good colorist can really make a story come alive in that way, uh, which is not to say that P.J. Holden didn't do a wonderful job. I mean, he researched the aircraft. He got all the details right. He has a terrific sense of character. Um, but, uh, yes, it, Kelly's colors really do help the thing come alive. Um, I did another book... Uh, last year called Sarah uh, with, uh, with Steve Epting, a uh, story about a, a team of Russian women snipers on the Eastern Front. Um, and Steve did a wonderful job, but the icing on the cake was uh, Betty Brightweiser's color. Uh, she really made the thing sing. And that's, that's again, the, you know, the amazingness of a excellent colorist. You know, you look at Hollingsworth's uh, colors on your run on Preacher and, Again, just phenomenal stuff. Yes, he did. He did a wonderful job, and I thought Pam Rambo uh, did a great job following him. Now, on top of that, you know, going back over to the subject of war comics, 
there are like a number of iconic names in the realm of comics that primarily did work with war comics, one of which being Joe Kubert. Uh, did you ever speak with him about his work, and were you a fan of his work growing up? Um, I did not know his work growing up. Um, as I said, I, I saw very, very few American comics as a kid. Uh, it wasn't until my late teens that I began to, to get a better awareness of American comics. Uh, I certainly liked Joe's work very much. I've seen his, his classic Sergeant Rock uh, stories, and I think he did a terrific job uh, alongside Russ Heath um, and John Severin. Uh, interestingly, Severin is one of the very few American comic artists I was aware of as a kid, because when, when my dad uh, visited the States, he brought me back uh, copies of Mad Magazine. <laughs> and of course, you see John Severin's work in there on uh, stuff like Prince Violent and so on. Uh, I was actually, I'm delighted to say I was eventually able to work with John Severin. He did a Punisher story for me. Uh, and that had, although it wasn't a war story, uh, it, it did uh, it did include a couple of sort of war sequences where uh, you saw Severin was as good at that, at that stuff as he'd ever been. Um, but really, Kubert was, as I say, uh, along with these other guys, um, really one of a number of people whose work I discovered later. Um, it was for me, it was really British war comics all the way. Eddie, uh, there's one title, Garth, that I believe is uh, one of Peter's. I know he told me he was reading it at some point, and if you could touch on that, your first American work, I believe, Hellblazer. Uh, yes, yes. Um, I think they've just brought out a compendium or a omnibus edition of that stuff. Uh, yes, that's uh, that was my first American work to see print. Um, I, I wrote that book for about uh, three and a half years, I think. And um, for me, what's what I think is most important about that experience is that's where my partnership with Steve Dillon. Uh, really came into its own. We'd done a couple of things before that, but when he came on to Hellblazer as regular artist about halfway through my run, uh, we we really did click creatively. And, of course, that led to Preacher and Punisher, and the rest is history. Well, for those who don't know, can you give us a synopsis of what this character is about? Sure. Uh, Hellblazer is uh, still being published today. It's uh, about an English... Uh, working-class magician uh, uh, called John Constantine. Uh, he's a sort of likable, wide-boy rogue who gets into trouble, uh, and in and out of trouble, um, uh, in occult stories, horror stories, you might say, with a very sort of uh, streetwise bent. So not your typical comic book magician like Doctor Strange or, or whatever. Um, far more down to earth. He was created by Alan Moore uh, during his classic Swamp Thing run back in the 80s. And uh, Hellblazer is Constantine in his own book. I was the um, second writer on the series. I took over from Jamie Delano, who, uh, who had launched the, the character in his own comic uh, in about 87 or 88. And one of the things I, you know, I love about that run is John is a, in many ways, an absolutely terrible person. And you, you give him 
absolute pun intended hell throughout that entire run. And he does learn from it, but it's like the torture he goes through every single bad thing. And it's one of those runs I cannot recommend enough. I actually just recently got the entire collection of uh, your run digitally. And I'm going to be rereading that real soon because my last read through amazing stuff. And I can't wait to experience it again. And, you know, paired alongside, as you mentioned, Steve Dillon's art, he's, Steve was a very visceral artist with how he could portray the violence. And it you could almost feel it in a way, you know? Uh, yes, he, he, he excelled at that. Although I think Steve's real strength was, uh, was character and yeah. storytelling. Um, he, he always said that he was really just interested in telling a good story. He didn't need any particular theme or aspect. Uh, he just said, give me a good story. Uh, now, I like to think he, I did, um, but that was what he was most interested in. And for a writer, an artist like that is an absolute godsend because you don't have to... Um, you don't have to fill the script with things that, that any particular artist likes. Uh, you already know that so long as you give him a good story, he'll tell it properly, uh, and he did so very many times. And I was very fortunate because uh, he had passed a few days after, um, I think a week or so after New York Comic Con in 2016, That's right, yeah. I say. And... I, you know, I had my copy of uh, Preacher Volume 1, and I was going to have him sign it, but then I saw the line, and I'm like, eh, maybe next time. But I was like, you know what, I'm just going to do this, be ballsy. I walked up, he was doing a commission for somebody on the line. I ran up, said, thank you for everything, shook his hand, walked away, had a big smile, and he was, like, very receptive. And Good, well, was, I'm, I'm glad you got to meet him. Uh, he really was a tremendous guy. He's a very special talent in comics that, you know, I'm glad I have been able to experience his work and still continue to be able to see, you know, still discover new things that I might not have otherwise discovered, you know? Yeah, yeah. I was very, very fortunate to have gotten to work with him and uh, and also uh, that he was my friend. Um, I, I actually grew up reading Steve's work, um, although we, we didn't meet until I was 19, um, he, uh, and I think he was about 27, uh, he had gotten the job very young. Uh, so, um, it was one of the things we had in common, actually. Uh, I started young as well. Uh, but he had been drawing, uh, Judge Dredd for 2000 AD for, gosh, seven or eight years before I actually met him. And so I'd grown up reading his work. So it was a real pleasure to not only become friends with him, but to end up working with him. Uh, I had that experience with a few people, actually, like Carlos Escara and uh, John Higgins. And, uh, yes, it's, it's lovely when things work out that way. What, uh, what, Garth, would you say, with respect to the character of Preacher? Well, two things. Uh, first, how did he get supernatural powers and what do you feel has been such an appeal to to fans of this character um how does he get supernatural powers? he he gets possessed by the offspring of a, it's a long time since i wrote this uh he gets possessed by the offspring of a demon and an angel um and the appeal of the character i 
I would imagine is his sort of old-fashioned Western hero quality where he sticks to his guns and does the right thing no matter what in uh, increasingly insane circumstances. So he's a, um, I don't want to say a moral character, or he has that, you know, he has semblances of that, maybe shades of that, but not exactly following the straight and narrow. Yes, he's moral-ish. Uh, he decides what he's going to do, and he absolutely does not waver from it. Because I believe we have, at least in our uh, circles, that is, Peter and I, and going to our local cons in the uh, tri-state New York, New Jersey area, one individual who modeled his cosplay after that, and his he goes by the name of Father Evil. So I think, mm-hmm. he, I think he's partly pe- preacher, but he's partly his own thing, and that's great, and he's, he's doing well with, with what he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that was an influence, at least in one particular case. Oh, right, right. And one of the things about Preacher, and just your work in general for myself, is your way with dialogue and how you can make characters sound so natural and all still have their own unique voices. What is your biggest influence for writing these characters and in terms of the dialogue, and how do you find ways to structure them the way you do? Well, in terms of writing dialogue, uh, it's interesting that you you uh, uh, ask me about that because that to me is one of the most important aspects of writing comics. It's uh, of writing anything really. It's how you bring the characters to life. It's actually why I can't read ninety percent of comics because I start trying to, and I find people talking in a way that they never have and never would, and something in me seizes up and I just can't go any further. Where I learned it, I'm not sure. Um, I, I grew up reading, uh, as I mentioned, a, a lot of war comics, but also 2000 AD, uh, where I, um, I enjoyed the work of British writers like John Wagner, Alan Grant, Pat Mills, Alan Moore, obviously. And I think their approach to dialogue has always been a little more down to earth uh, than a lot of their contemporaries in American comics. Um, you just have to look at the the impression Alan Moore, in particular, made on the American industry when when he first popped up in the uh, in the mid eighties. Um, so, having learned from guys like that, I think that took me a long way down that path. That helped enormously. And when you, you know, in regards to you know preacher, for example, like you can tell each character has their own unique voice. And that's what I like about it, because when you read a Cassidy line, you will not hear a Jesse do that, or a Tulip, or a Star. You can't, you know, you won't be able to read it, unless, like, let's say, Cassidy is getting mocked by Star, and he does the same exact thing, you know? So it's like something he would say in a mocking tone. Mm-hmm. But it's just the way you, you know, again, they all have their own unique voices. And I feel like that's, like you would say, you know, a lot of, like, a lot of comic writers maybe, you know, should realize that a little. You know, you have to make them all unique, but still they're, you know, cohesive. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I mean, there, there are a lot of people who tend to write characters as, as quite one note in uh, terms of dialogue. You, you get a lot of sort of very self-aware, heavily ironic, wisecracking but when every character in the room is doing that, it becomes a bit 
well, it wears you down. It's the kind, it's the kind of thing I'm talking about when I say I can't read most comics. Um, when it came to Preacher, I mean, it, it helps that Jesse's Texan and Cassidy's Irish. It helps that Star is German and talks a little bit like a villain in a war movie, but with an, uh, an added vein of very heavy sarcasm. And when it comes to the Saint of Killers, well, he's a man of very, very few words anyway. Um, Arseface, no one's going to mistake him for anybody else. Uh, probably the most normal and down-to-earth character, Tulip, is the one who talks without, who speaks without Eddie any idiosyncrasies whatsoever. She's she's a very normal person. Uh, I think it's part of her appeal. My favorite thing in regards to the character of Arseface is just how he's when you when you read his origin story of what he was before the disfiguration. I absolutely, I absolutely love how you made him very golly gee shucks. I love that change in tone, that change in everything. He's yeah, now, you know, got a bright disposition. It's great. Yes, he sort of became the perfect son, you know, the all-American boy. Uh, it's just that all it took was having most of his face removed. Yeah. And in regards, to, going back over to the war comics, have you ever heard any feedback from your for your work with those? from actual, you know, veterans of wars? Uh, yes, on a couple of occasions. Um, I wrote a book called Dreaming Eagles, which was uh, about the Tuskegee Airmen. And um, I was very fortunate that I met uh, one of those Tuskegee Airmen. In fact, um, a guy called Roscoe Brown. Um, I, I, I met him the year before he died. Of course, he was very, very old. And... Um, he liked the book enough to sign it. Uh, so did another one of the veterans. I've I've heard from various people that uh, their uh, Vietnam veteran fathers or uncles or in some cases grandfathers seem to quite appreciate some of my Punisher work um, uh, set in that particular war. Uh, I even heard from one guy at a con um, that his I think father. Uh, who'd been an Israeli tank crewman uh, in the uh, Golan Heights fighting in the 1973 Yom Kippur War, uh, was quite impressed by a story I wrote called Children of Israel, which handled that very battle. Um, I think the guy was surprised that anyone was even interested enough in what he'd done to write a story, never mind the, the specific one I'd done, but he did seem to like it. Things like that, uh, you, you do get that sort of stuff trickling back. And when you get aficionados talking to you, you know, war history aficionados, are there ever, like, the reaction from some of them, like, wow, you covered that? Like, they're, even they're like, wow, that's a deep cut for a uh, story to write about. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the Israeli guy's a good example. Um, but I, I do hear that from people from time to time, that uh, they didn't think that anyone would write about this, or in other cases, uh, they'd never even heard of it themselves. Um, I mean, this, this goes back to what I was talking about, where I said that many of these stories are becoming forgotten stories. Uh, they deal with aspects of the war that no one had ever heard of. Um, the Second World War, I think, in, in the public consciousness is reduced to a, a vague memory of America fighting the Germans and the Nazis, uh, oh, and there's the Japanese as well, and wasn't there an atomic bomb? But beyond that, uh, 
more detailed knowledge, I think, more detailed awareness is getting lost more and more as time goes by. Eddie? I think that's a natural progression of uh, just like, you know, we we are down to, I'm going to say, a handful of uh, living World War II veterans. So that, unfortunately, is now going to be relegated to history books. So it does, it, that's a part of the course of nature, I guess, time. Oh, I think so. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, after all, if you were... If you were 18 in 1943, as an example, how old are you now? Uh, gosh, you've, you've got to be in your late 90s. Mm. And, you know, a lot of your work has been adapted for the screen, both, you know, the small and the big screen. And surprisingly, as far as I can tell, none of your war stories have been adapted. If you had the ability to do so, what would be the one story of yours that is a war comic, would you want to see adapted for, uh, for the screen? Um, that's hard to say. I, mean, I should point out that the only work of mine that's been adapted uh, is uh, The Boys and uh, Preacher. Um, I don't think anything else has been. Um, but when it comes to the war stories, uh, gosh, that's the agony of choice. I would, I would probably zero in on either Sarah, which is the... Um, the sniper story I mentioned about the uh, the woman sniper in the siege of Leningrad, or one not unlike it called the Night Witches uh, about the um, Russian woman air crew who flew the uh, the night bombers against the Germans around the same time. Uh, just because I think uh, those stories are so unusual and and so far outside most people's awareness. Anything, Garth, in particular uh, that you're either at liberty to say that you might be working on now or keeping yourself occupied while we all uh, self-isolate? Well, in terms of war stories, I I have nothing I'm working on right now, but I mentioned earlier that I always have uh, ideas kicking about. Um, I want to write a story about the Battle of Britain in 1940. Uh, I'd like to do something about Russian partisans. Um, I'd like to do something about the British against the Japanese in Burma. I have an idea for uh, a story about a Canadian bomber crew towards the end of World War II. There are others, but those are the ones that are, I suppose, most immediately ready to go. So the next time someone says to me, maybe it'll be dead reckoning if the string bag does well enough, but the next time someone says to me, we'd like you to do a war story, it'll be one of those. Mm. How long? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just gonna. I was thinking, and I guess it's it's on a time frame, but you're either given or come up with an idea, and you have X amount of weeks, months. How long does it get? Does it take you, or and it probably varies to put together a story. Um, it it does vary. I mean, I write a, about say twenty pages a week, roughly. This is these are very ballpark figures here, but if we say that if I if I write about twenty pages a week and the string bags is what, hundred and sixty, hundred and seventy pages, um it might have taken me gosh uh, a couple of months, although as I recall the more I I, I enjoy I, I recall enjoying the string bags very much. Uh, as I do with most of my war stories. And so the longer I went with it, probably the faster I wrote it because, you know, I wanted to get to the, the juicy bits. I wanted to get to the meat of the story. That's true across the board, really, that the more I enjoy something, the faster I'll write it. 
Um, but 20 pages a week is, is not a bad ballpark figure. When you do send in work and it's, it's X amount of pages, I assume in the uh, process that follows, some of that, I don't know what percentage of it, maybe that's what I'm getting at, winds up not making it to the end of the, end of the, the uh, assembly line, so to speak. Uh, no, no, the whole thing gets illustrated. I mean, what I, what I write goes on the page. So it all goes through. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Now, in regards to, you know, war movies and comics and whatnot, what are some of your all-time favorites? Not by yourself, obviously, but, you know, yeah. in general. Um, well, uh, in terms of war comics, um, you do, again, you're talking about the, the ones I grew up on, um, there's strips uh, like Johnny Red, which is a fighter pilot story, uh, Darkies Mob, which is a, a story about the uh, the British fighting in Burma. Uh, HMS Nightshade was a, a, a naval story about a, a British corvette on the uh, Murmansk run. Um, to me, the best war comic of all time is one called Charlie's War um, that appeared in Battle in the 70s and 80s, but it's been collected by Rebellion, and it's, it's currently available. It's the story of a, uh, a young uh, British soldier, uh, I'd say a boy, he's, he's 16 when he joins the British Army in 1916, and sees out the last two years of the First World War. Um, that had a big effect on me as a kid, and I, I do think it's still the, the best war comic, if not the best comic ever published. Um, and in terms of movies, um, I, I tend to like the uh, the big cast of thousands epics of the 60s and 70s, like The, the Longest Day, The Battle of Britain, A Bridge Too Far. Um, I like older things, too, like uh, Sahara or Ice Cold and Alex. Um, and I like, uh, there's a couple of more modern films I like. There's one called uh, A Midnight Clear, which came out in the early 90s. I thought it was terrific. Uh, probably the best thing I've seen more recently, uh, although it's, it's already 20 years old, would be Band of Brothers. Uh, I thought that was absolutely terrific. Um, and uh, moving outside World War II, um, I think probably my favorite Vietnam movies would be uh, would be Full Metal Jacket and Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. which um, which I think score really because I believe uh, a, a weird war deserves a, a weird war movie or peculiar might be a better word than weird. Yeah, but I think they both nicely capture the uh, the, the rather odd nature of that conflict. With Apocalypse Now, are you a uh, original cut guy, the Redux? Uh, original. Right on. Right on, indeed. Garth Ennis, thank you so much for your time and for your work. We wish you a lot of continued success. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. For The Marvelous, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Garth Ennis. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior.